everyone. This is Sandy Vartharaja, co-host of the Pulse podcast. In this episode, I sat with Paul Martino, co-founder and chief strategy officer of VillageMD. VillageMD is the leading solution for healthcare for organizations moving towards a high-value primary care-led clinical model. It works with over 2,500 physicians in eight markets and is responsible for about half a million lives and $3 billion in total medical spend in value-based contracts. In July of this year, VillageMD made a huge splash by announcing an expanded partnership with Walgreens, who will invest $1 billion in VillageMD to open over 500 clinics inside Walgreens drugstores across 30 U.S. markets in the next five years. Paul is no stranger to healthcare. As a 30-year veteran of the healthcare industry, Paul has fostered innovation, namely as a health plan executive. Prior to VillageMD, he was Senior Vice President of Clinical Strategy and Innovation at Anthem, where he was instrumental in architecting their payment innovation strategy. Prior to that, Paul also spent time at Cigna, Aetna, and Kaiser Permanente. As a kid, I worked in a pharmacy. Paul and Sarah Appel owned Appel Drug. And there were three or four pharmacies that they own, which are today part of CBS. I wanted a job there. So I knocked on their door and said, I would like to work for your pharmacy. And so they hired me. And I thought I was like going to be working in the pharmacy. Well, they had a van and they delivered to emergency convalescent facilities. I was a driver. <laughs> Not exactly what I had in mind. <laughs> so my parents said, you know, you're going you're gonna to go to college. What are you going to study? They said, well, you're working for a drugstore. Why don't you be a pharmacist? And so I entered the School of Pharmacy at the University of Connecticut taking biology and organic chemistry and physical chemistry and physics. And I was like, we're not doing this. Then I made my way. My dad said, why don't you become a business major? And that was basically a bunch of kids cheating on multiple choice tests. This is even dumber than being a pharmacist. I'm going to do something I like to do, which is philosophy and reading and thinking. And it was awesome. But there was one small problem. In 1982, the interest rates were like 18% and the unemployment rate was 12%. The demand for philosophy majors was inconsequential. So the options for me were join the Peace Corps, go to Nepal and you know, run a fish hatchery or something like that, or two job offers, one from what was then Connecticut General Life Insurance Company or Aetna. Aetna job was as an underwriter in Hartford, Connecticut, and the now Cigna job was as a management trainee in Columbus, Ohio. So the desire to not live with my parents was really high, and so I took the job in Ohio. I had a 32-year career as a health plan guy. We called it the insurance industry back in the day. The last stop was uh, seven years working for Anthem, where I was a senior VP in an interesting, very interesting job, uh, senior VP of clinical strategy and innovation. And as a non-clinician in that type of a company, the only person that has that job is a doc. And so everybody before me was a doc. And I think after I left the company, everybody in that job has been a physician. So if you, it was really an interesting confluence of events. At the time, the Affordable Care Act had just come into being. The woman who was my boss at the time had me in this role. I said to her one day, I don't think we're thinking about this right. We're acting like the Affordable Care Act is not going to happen. And if you go back to 09 and you find an edition of the Wall Street Journal, you'll see Barack Obama, President Obama, juxtaposed to Angela Browley on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. And I said to Dewana, this does not seem like a winning strategy. 
strategy to me. We're trying to fight against what ultimately is going to become the Affordable Care Act. I have a different idea. And so she said, what's the idea? And I said, why don't we get together with our Blue Plan brethren? We don't compete against each other. We cover a third of Americans. And why don't we put forth what we think would be the best answer for, let's call it universal coverage, coverage for all, whatever you want to call it. And why don't we share with the administration what our ideas are? And so she said, well, what are our ideas? And I said, I think we should, in my opinion, pay people for the value they create. We should stop doing things that people don't want. We should get out of the middle of the physician-patient relationship. We should anchor around primary care doctors. They are in the best position to take care of people, overall health and well-being. And which includes financial, my view, and let people tell us when they need our help. So she kind of had this, almost this blank look on her face. And she said, well, have you run this by Vivian? Vivian Reefberg, who is a McKinsey partner and a brilliant woman, was always roaming around the boardroom of our company. And I said, no, I haven't run it by her yet, but I will. And she said, if you can get Vivian on board, then I'll get you an audience at Angela's table. Angela Browley was the CEO at the time. Everybody gets 15 minutes of fame, as Andy Warhol once said. And uh, my little 15 minutes of fame didn't go so well. Because <laughs> uh, to quote one of the executives in the room, he said, this is an interesting idea, but it's not who we are. So shortly after that, my boss left the company and a new doc came in who I began to report to, Dr. Harlan Levine, and he liked the idea. And so we ran it up the flagpole again, and this time it got some support. And the idea was to co-create a company with Accretive Health. Tim Berry and Dr. Clive Fields were respectively president and chief medical officer of the accretive health population health business. And the idea was that we would co-create a company and Anthem would own a minority interest in that company so that the new entity would be able to work with physicians across all of their patients, no matter who their insurance coverage was. We got support from Angela and the CEO of Accretive, Mary Tolan, to do this. This is now 2012. And unfortunately, in that same year, Accretive Health got in trouble with the attorney general in Minnesota. Anthem invited Angela to leave the company and the idea lost enthusiasm and energy. Shortly thereafter, Dr. Harlan Levine left the company. This was now November of 2012. And I decided it was probably time for me to go. And so I called Tim Berry and said, this idea is a really good idea. We don't need Anthem to do it. I want to join your team at Accretive. I know a bunch of the other blues plants. We can get another blues plan to do this. And he said, you know, I got a different idea. We don't need Accretive Health either. We should just do this ourselves. Ironically, as I stated Anthem from the Monday after Thanksgiving when I called Tim, 2012, to September 13th of 2013, I remained at Anthem, but I was working on the business plan with Tim and Clive for Village MD. In fact, some folks know this, I actually took time off from Anthem to go visit Optum. Interestingly, Andy Slavitt, who, as you know, later became the administrator of uh, CMS, uh, we met with uh, Rick Jelnick, Andy Slavitt, and one um, one other guy, I think his name was Rick White, to present the idea of Village MD to them and the idea that they would provide seed capital to us. And Andy later called Tim Barry and said, you know, we don't really want to fund you guys, but we wouldn't mind acquiring you and have you join the company and run Optum Care. And so I said to Tim and Clive, look, I'm going to get severed by Anthem at some point. And the one company that they're not going to let me work for is United Health Group. Yeah. So if you guys want to do that, I get it. I just can't be part of it. And so Tim, to his credit, said, nope, we're going to do this ourselves. We don't need their money. We'll go raise money ourselves. And so we did a friends and family round. 
and we raised four million of angel investor money. And the three of us took no income for the first three years of the company. We got it going. I have so many questions, but before we dive into Village MD specifically, I think we're in a privileged position to have someone who has done a tour of so many major insurance companies. And I think that window of expertise is something that is so rare to get on the phone. So I, I want to ask a quick question about that. But what I find fascinating and I think emblematic of a lot of major insurers today is that in the face of the ACA, instead of deciding to partner, leadership wanted to fight. Even when you pitched interesting ideas, they said, this isn't who we are. So I think that there's a movement in the country right now. I think it's a little aggressive to say, take down the insurance industry. But I, I do think there's a movement of people that are essentially fed up with it the way it has been. I could argue the same about health systems, but leave that aside for a minute. When I talk to inspiring leaders like Todd Park, he uh, was the CTO for the White House during the Obama administration. And Todd is now, and his brother Ed Park, are the founders of a health plan called Devoted. We are the most passionate and advocate supporters of Devoted for one reason and one reason only. Essentially, their motto is treat every patient like it was your mother. And what would you do if it was your mother who needed this care? That resonated with me because I think unless you can align the interests of a physician that cares for patients with the economics of healthcare, you are going to get bad answers. There's a brilliant documentary called Escape Fire and Dr. Don Berwick is mm -hmm. in Escape Fire and Don Berwick says, everybody's doing their job. The jobs were just designed wrong. We pay hospitals to fill their beds so they fill their beds. And, and the story goes, right? We pay specialists to do procedures so they do procedures. In the system today, there's all this over procedure on prostate cancer, in my opinion. As our co-founder, Dr. Fields, would say, everybody that dies as an older male will die with prostate cancer, but not from prostate cancer. And that's a really interesting idea, right? So the concept of not doing things to people b b began to enter my mind. Anyway, the insurance industry has to evolve and change. What I think is going to end up happening is you're going to see a lot more alignment around risk-bearing entities, insurance companies, and people providing care, doctors, health systems, specialists. That's where we're headed. And I think we're going to get a lot of help from CMS when they introduce things like direct contracting entities and we've applied for them. I think you're just seeing a greater accelerating movement toward risk for entities like ours, which are really in support of providers. One thing I've been reflecting on recently is insurance companies seem to be more about accessing networks, not necessarily risk coverage or risk assurance, which is the traditional role of an insurance company. But from a health plan perspective, we need to move towards these entities being more in the care delivery or provider business and having more integrated points of care. So that's interesting. So there was a disservice that was done in this country a couple of decades ago. Hospitals rolled out of bed one day and said, you know, I'm going to call myself a health system and I'm going to employ a lot of physicians and I'm going to do a lot of things that are maybe not necessarily in the best interest of patient care. So think academic medical centers doing low intensity, high volume procedures like colonoscopy. And at the same time that happened, insurance companies like Cigna, my job offer that I mentioned in 1982, the letterhead was the Connecticut General Life Insurance Company. And they rolled out of bed one day and said, I'm going to call myself a health plan. If they're going to be a health system, I'm going to be a health plan. And if you really roam the hallways of large insurance companies, the loud voices in the room are actuaries. And what are they good at? Evaluating and underwriting risk. If you ask them about what's the right patient care for chronic type 2 diabetic, I don't know. 
but we've charged them with financing that. I don't know that this is right. I think it's a lot of it's misaligned. Famous last words from Optum and Andy Slavitt. I'm curious in the years since, have you been approached by Optum on the same acquisition offer? Can you speak to that or financing? It's such a great question because it's been such a crazy journey for us. Yes, Optum has offered to buy us on multiple occasions and we've said, thank you, we're not interested on multiple occasions. In some ways, I think there needs to be, I'll call it a competitor to Optum. If you talk to physicians today, they're fatigued and their economics are kind of unstable, especially in the face of coronavirus. Most of these physicians would say, if I don't want to remain in independent practice, which is becoming scarier and scarier, I have a couple of options. I can sell to a health system or I can sell to Optum. And part of what Village MD wants to be is the preferred employer of choice for physicians that choose employment as an option. And that's the that's the origin and genesis of Village Medical, which is owned by Village M. Yep. Yeah, it has happened on multiple occasions. Increasingly full stack, risk-bearing primary care models that are tech-enabled, all the buzzwords, right? Yeah. It's becoming a very hot area. You have CityBlock, Landmark, Iora, ChedMed, and some of these are brick and mortar natives. Others are enablement platforms like an Allidade. Mm. So how do you view Village MD in comparison to all of these other players? And how's your strategy changed over time. You know, you weren't a brick and mortar sort of physical asset company before, and now certainly you are making quite the splash. So what does that journey look like for Village MD? So first and foremost, I want Allidade and Agilon and Iora and keep going. I want all of them to be wildly successful. And I hope they are. And if we could help them, we would. We would. And I want them to be successful because in the end, they want to change the current system and the current system has to change. I wish them well on their journey. My answer is we do different things. We approach it differently and we do different things. When I look at organizations, say like an Iora or an Oak Street, they care for a subset of a population. In that population, usually it is the chronically ill, high risk, Medicare or Medicare Advantage or dual eligible patient. So they are kind of off the charts on the high end of medical need, care need, I should say. Allidade is really squarely focused on Medicare ACOs. And so that is their entry point into practices that exist today. Unlike ChenMed or Iora or Oak Street, they go set up a new clinic and they recruit a physician and then they recruit patients. Um, unlike that model, somebody like an Allidade works with existing practices in existing markets with the idea that they're going to perform better than the rest of a market in a Medicare shared savings model, so MSSP. What we do is we actually want to work with a patient panel and a practice in an existing geography. And one of the attractions, I'm going to skip ahead, but I'll come back. One of the attractions to us about Walgreens is they serve a community. If you talk to the Walgreens leadership teams, they would say that they have 90%, 92%, I think, of Americans live within five miles of a Walgreens. So they are at the intersection of Maine and Maine and America's just serving people. And part of that serving is, is convenient access to pharmacies and convenient access to what they call the front of the store. So things that you could buy in the front of the store. Um, we want to serve a 
patient population with an existing physician in that same community. And so when we think about patient care, when we think about a physician, usually docs are pillars of their community. Most people know physicians in their community. Most people go to physicians in their community, primary care and specialty care. And so that's what we're trying to accomplish. And then we're trying to orient it in a way that provides for convenient access. And to my point from when I was working at Anthem, let's pay people for the value they create. Little statistic for you. When I worked at Anthem, independent primary care physicians in general generate cost of care that's about 10% less than when they become employed at health systems. And so if you know that, and our model, our business model is primarily to support independent primary care physicians, it's because they are going to generate the best economic outcome because of the way they practice care. One other thing about this hierarchy of physicians, Primary care physicians are amongst the lowest compensated amongst all physicians. You know, if you want to be really well compensated, become an IST, it is, so a, a special IST, whether that's a cardiologist or a dermatologist or an anesthesiologist. A primary care physician, by choosing that specialty, has already made a poor economic decision. So because of that, their hearts, and if you talk to them, are in the place of doing the right thing for patients. So let's help them do the right thing for patients. Let's help them get better economics. And if we do that right, then we're gonna get an overall better patient experience and a better health outcome. You know, one of the benefits of a hospital system or health system is that it has so many of these revenue centers that help keep it afloat. But what is the path to profitability for a company like a Village MD or an Oak Street? So I think that the Oak Streets and the Ioras of the world, Rashika's most recent commentary, it looks like he's trying to pivot that business in a different direction. They recently laid off some people in Phoenix that we've picked up and there's a change underway there. The path to profitability in an organization like Oak Street is really, t- it's long and it's hard. I think they said in their S1 that they have four, only four of their clinics that are at the sort of maturity level of full profitability. And that's why I I think Ior is pivoting, and that's why ChenMed, that's been around for a couple of decades, hasn't grown out of Florida more quickly, more aggressively. I think that the benefit of a model like Village MD is it's a pretty quick path to profitability for a physician practice. is probably a two to three year journey. It's not not all that long. The unit economics, I think, are really attractive in our business, in part because we are working with an existing physician who has an existing patient panel. We're not trying to go down the street, open up a clinic recruit a doc, and now start recruiting patients. There's a tremendous amount of marketing expense. You called it GNA. There's a ton of marketing expense to building a clinic and recruiting patients, in part because there's a counterbalance. And the counterbalance is those patients are already somebody's patients, a doc. In fact, that's his perception, is that somebody came to town and is trying to steal my patients. One of the things that's extremely important to us in our Walgreens model, and we'll get to this, we're not trying to steal another physician's patients. We're trying to be an employee employer of choice for those physicians who've already raised their hand and said, I'm willing to be employed. So our model is in a practice with a physician that's in the community, with a patient panel that they serve, now conveniently located or co-located at a Walgreens, which provides easy access, same floor, no multi-story office building, well-lit parking, safe and secure at Maine and Maine in most towns in America. That's the goal of that partnership. And by the way, we've studied this, and so has Walgreens. We have a white paper. Dr. Field says this so eloquently. If you take the most commonly used provider in the healthcare system, which is primary care, with the most commonly used service, which is prescription, and you co-locate them, you're likely going to get a better clinical outcome. And our view is, if you get a better clinical outcome, 
with a better patient experience and higher physician job satisfaction, the costs will follow. It's hard as hell to do, but the concept is simple. And so that's, that's our business. It's just a little different than the other businesses that are out there and what you call that risk primary care. It, it sounds like the model you're describing is sort of a, a managed services organization. Like is Village MD an MSO with a tech stack? We want to be the largest provider of at-risk primary care in the country. And we would like to have physicians with ownership in the company so that they can benefit if they choose to, so if we're a publicly traded company and they choose to own stock, then they benefit from the economics that we create that actually they create. So that's our goal, has always been our goal. The MSO is nothing more than a support mechanism for at-risk primary care physicians. And when we say at-risk is to not put the physicians at financial risk because we've seen this movie before go back a few decades. They called them PPMs, Physician Practice Management. And those companies took a little bit of money off the top, gave the docs the rest, and then said, good luck. We hope it works out for you. That's not our business. Our business is actually, to use a phrase Dr. Fields would say, I want somebody that's actually doing things to help me and with me, not to me. That seems like a subtle distinction. It's actually a pretty significant distinction. Part of our platform, Doc OS is intended to do exactly that. We have an analytic component to DocOS. I have a, an iPhone here. You probably have one too. This iPhone has an operating system. I have absolutely no earthly idea how it works. But what I do know is if I have to get to the airport and I have an app and call Uber, a car shows up and brings me to the airport. That is what that is the goal of DocOS for physicians. You don't have to change your EMR unless you want to. You don't have to worry about getting claims data from payers or information from health information exchanges or what they call ADT, admit discharge and transfer data from hospital systems. You don't have to worry about any of that. We'll take care of that. We made a decision early on when we invested in DocOS. We'll allow physicians to do what they do the way they're doing on systems and technology that they've already invested in. That horse is out of the barn a long time ago. Every physician in America, minus a very small exception, are already on in EMR. So let's not show up and tell them, you're going to change your EMR day one and you're going to like it. Allow them to keep doing what they're doing and serving patients. Let's just enable them where they are. My view, our view of the world, Clive's view of the world, it's a pretty hard conversation if we, day one, say, throw out everything that you've invested in for the last 10 years and we're going to take over from here. Not a really great place to start. When I was working for Anthem, we would provide information to physicians, things like hotspotter reports, things like gap in care reports. And I would sit down with these docs and say, how is it going working with our PCMS report? And they would say, I don't think you get how my life works. I've seen patients from 7.30 or 8 o'clock in the morning till lunch where I take a 30-minute break, if I'm lucky, choke down a sandwich, return a few patient phone calls, call in a few medications. I'm back in clinic from, call it 1 to 5.30. I go home, I coach my kids' little league team, and I'm charting in my EMR from 8 to 10 p.m. They call that pajama time. When do you think I'm going to use your hotspotter report? So the point to that is give information to physicians at a point in time where they can use it which is when they're actually seeing patients. It sounds like what you all are trying to do is tackle some of that physician burnout and distill all the complexity from platforms for utilization management, for referrals management, clinical decision support, care management. Like 
all of these things and surface it in a way that's actually actionable for the provider. I, I think there are very few solutions that actually empower physicians in such a way. The point you were just making, and I was listening really carefully to your word selection, it, it is fulfilling the promise of what you just laid out, reduce physician burnout, take the burden of worrying about all the things that health systems require you, you to worry about, take the headache off the table and do what you were trained to do, what you spent your life learning to do, which is care for patients. Be in the moment and give the patient the care they deserve. Leave all the noise to us. So let's shift to Walgreens, the big elephant in the room. How is Walgreens, the Walgreens Village MD partnership strategy different from that of Walmart, Amazon, and CVS? And how do you plan to compete with all of these retailers? Plan to compete with all of these retailers? Yeah. So let's go back in time. Uh, 2017, a longtime friend of mine, Brad Flewell, who we worked together at Aetna, worked together at Anthem, we were having a fun evening. And I said, Brad, I've never asked you for a favor in our professional and personal history. I'd love to meet the team that is running the retail clinics at Walgreens. No offense, but I think we could probably do a better job of running them than you. And so Brad facilitated an introduction for me and Dr. Fields with their chief medical officer, Dr. Pat Carroll, and one of their lead pharmacists on the partnership of these retail clinics, Namashavari. They came to our office in Chicago and we shared with them the Village MD story. And the original idea was in Houston, they had 17 clinics that they were running themselves and the idea was, Village MD, you become our outsourced partner like Advocate is here in Chicago. And so we studied the economics of those clinics in Houston and went back to Walgreens and said, this is a money losing proposition here. And so it seems like a crummy business. We might be able to make it less crummy, but why don't we just reimagine it? Why don't we just do primary care for real in these clinics? That birthed the concept of co-locating true full functioning primary care co-located with a pharmacy. We opened five of those clinics beginning in November of last year. And the clinic is co-located with a retail store and a pharmacy. We get about 3,000 square feet. It has its own separate private privileged professional entrance to this clinic. In the clinic is seven exam rooms, two telehealth rooms, and a lab. Out the back door, which is keypadded, so you can walk out, but you can't walk in. You walk out and you go down the OTC aisle to the pharmacy. We prioritize the prescriptions so that by the time the patient gets dressed and leaves the exam room and checks out, their prescriptions are essentially ready and waiting for them. So we're trying again to improve this patient experience. When a pharmacy is open, it's a requirement that you have to have a pharmacist behind the counter whenever it's open. So they have a separate special pharmacist, clinical pharmacist, that we, our physicians, can text, and they can come into the clinic through the keypadded entrance and do a med reconciliation on the spot. They can do patient counseling right there before the patient ever leaves the exam room. So we're trying to create the experience where the most commonly used service with a professional support, an underutilized pharmacist, in my view, with a physician and a patient having a counseling session on med reconciliation, medication therapy management, improving no-fill rates. Retail pharmacies generally have about a 25% no-fill rate. We can, we can drive that single digits, et cetera. How is it different? I don't think the health hub concept at CVS is even remotely near that. I don't think what Walmart is doing today is driving to that same kind of an experience. Maybe they'll get there, 
I hope they get there, but they're not there today. We want to serve patients that have insurance, that don't have insurance. You can get a same-day appointment walk-in, and if we don't have a clinician available, we'll do it with a televisit for $39. It starts at $39 for a walk-in with no coverage and just self-pay. And these are people that are also in underserved communities. That was a big part of what we were doing, is trying to serve patients in an underserved community. We've got to get a little bit better and a little bit smarter about our Medicaid strategy, and we're working on that. But a lot of the underserved community is covered by Medicaid, and then there's a component that are self-pay. When I think about the town that I live in here in Elmhurst, a bit of a charmed life, it's a fairly you know nice, affluent suburb of Chicago. I actually walk to the train if I want to go downtown to our office in the city. And right near the train station is a Walgreens that does not have a clinic in it today. And my goal is to build one in that Walgreens store. There's a CVS that's also in town, not quite as convenient as the Walgreens because the Walgreens is literally in the city center and the CVS is on the outskirts of the city center off of North Avenue. Still pretty convenient, but not quite as convenient. And then Walmart is in town too, but it's off of a very busy major thoroughfare tucked off the side of of this Route 83. So you can't walk there, you have to drive there. We're all going to have a different model. We're all going to try to get to a place that's serving the people that are in general going to those retail outlets. For us, it's about that optimal patient experience. In the future, what you should expect, in my view, I'm on the record with this with the most senior people, including the CEO of Walgreens. We're not thinking about it fully yet. I believe what we're creating is an integrated ambulatory patient experience tethered to the home. And so it looks like this, a pharmacy, telehealth, a lab, flat panel imaging, so, so x-ray, with certain subspecialties that are co-located because we have enough exam room space to serve them. And if we do it right, I would like partnerships with health systems for all specialties where we can do a same day, same immediate consult. So if a patient is being seen by a primary care doctor and we have a partnership with Advocate in Chicago, I want to be able to have an immediate consult with a cardiologist, just pick a specialty, while that patient is in the exam room. So think of it. The doctor can order whatever test he or she needs, send those records electronically over a secure HIPAA-compliant DOCOS to the cardiologist and have a teleconsult on the spot. So that patient doesn't have to wait two months for a cardiology appointment. They can collaborate and figure out what's wrong now. And by the way, we can have the pharmacist in the room too. Why does that not exist in healthcare today? It's possible. And by the way, if we got the whole front of the store, we could actually build a small ambulatory surgery center with two ORs. And if that patient needed a colonoscopy, whatever it might be, and let's do it now. This can happen and we're just not allowing it to. I'm 60 years old. This is going to happen before I retire. So I'm making this my personal mission. Every patient deserves that kind of experience. And me and my older brother pay for my mom and dad to have basically MDVIP, 3000 bucks a year for concierge care. Why is that? Because they're not getting the care that they need from their current PCPs. Their current PCPs are part of a group, I won't say the name of the group, that's in Hartford, Connecticut. And that group, it, my dad and mom are covered by a Medicare Advantage plan with United Healthcare. And that group, they're on a risk contract with United Healthcare. And my parents are so dissatisfied with the service they get from their PCP that we're paying for them to have a concierge medicine provider. Shame on America that that has to happen. Thank God that me and my brother can afford the three grand for them, but that's a, it's just a mistake. And we have the opportunity to change that.
Yeah, I love the points you made around, you know, Walmart certainly has potentially the highest foot traffic, half America walking through its doors every week. But from a convenience perspective, just looking at number of stores, CVS and Walgreens dominate. You mentioned the, you know, strategy including telemedicine, at-home care, in-clinic care. Frankly speaking, that seems kind of pie in the sky. How does Village MD plan to operationalize especially in the pandemic world, home care, but also leveraging the synergies of co-located clinic and pharmacy, but also recognizing the shift to virtual care. We employ Dr. Tom Cornwell. Tom Cornwell is the pioneer of in-home care. And that relationship is courtesy of one of his patients who is now deceased that granted him a substantial sum of money to create a nonprofit. Dr. Cornwell has personally done almost 34,000 home visits. My money is on Dr. Cornwell. If you think about America, do you have neighborhood watch in your community? We do here. And my next door neighbor here is an elderly gentleman and uh, he unfortunately has dementia and his wife passed away about a year ago. And I see him all the time and I'll help him bring in his trash cans when the, after the garbage guys come. Why do we not have community support for people like him tethered to a Walgreens so that if something happened to Bob as my neighbor and I, I found out because I knocked on his door and he didn't answer and I called his daughter, let's take Bob to Walgreens where we have a clinic, which is a one minute drive or a 15 minute walk. And so tether the home to the community, to the convenient clinic. And if something really needs to happen to Bob and ultimately he needs in-home care of the hospice type, that's what I think people want. They don't want to die in the hospital. They want to die at home. My money's on Dr. Cornwell. I had a televisit like this, uh, a, a Zoom, yesterday with a group of hospitalists in Phoenix, Arizona. I want to acquire this group because what they're doing is that in-home care. And it's really interesting. Who refers the patients to them? SNFs, long-term assisted living facilities, because they don't know what to do with them. They know where they're headed, which is unfortunately to be deceased. These guys are caring for those people today. So this good work is actually being done in these pockets all over America. We gotta get it together into this larger enterprise so that we, wh what do I wanna do with that group? I wanna take them all over America and have them find like-minded physicians and teach them what they're doing. It's possible. We're just pretending that it isn't. And uh, the mission of this company is to do exactly that. It's my life's work for the next six years. Another point I love about this partnership is that Village MD is committed to 50% of the clinics being in underserved areas. One of my biggest frustrations with digital health is that you have a lot of people on the coast who aren't building solutions for people in the middle. And the great thing about this is you're meeting this population where they already are. You're tethering yourself to something that's very community centric. So that's right. really love that. Only two minutes left. I would love to get your thoughts on COVID-19. Is the shift to telemedicine all hype? And how is that impacting how you think about your strategic roadmap? COVID is, it's a wake-up call for people, for America, for other countries. This has happened before. We called it SARS. We called it MERS. We called it the bird flu. We called it H1N1. This has been going on for more than a decade. This time, let's take it for real. And, and let's not let it ruin the economy. All the hype around, you know, it was born out of a lab in China. I don't care about any of that stuff. It's noise. The, the reality is people get it. People that are, are frail get it and die. Let's not let that happen again. In terms of patient care, telehealth is here to stay. Why did we not use it before? Because it was, again, back to my earlier point, 
a misalignment of economics. Why, we had telehealth available, why weren't the docs using it? Answer, because they got paid 20 bucks, as opposed to an in-office visit where they got paid 90 bucks. What would you do, right? And by the way, an in-office visit also has people that need other services, so the value of what we call the encounter is actually worth like 125 bucks. Option A, 125, option B, 20. I'm not gonna make a dumb economic decision, neither would you, neither would a doctor. So telehealth's here to stay. We need to compel the government, CMS. We need to compel payers to keep the reimbursement at the same level so that we can continue to provide safe patient care, whether it's in the clinic or in a televisit like this in the home. Do physicians actually need physical real estate offices anymore? I think another cool element of your model is you're building that stack up for the physician and they no longer have to take on that burden. So it's almost like a we work for healthcare element. We've yeah, done. yeah. I think we're going to need a lot less medical office buildings in the future than we have today. And I want to leave you with a challenge. I've been thrilled to spend time with you this morning. And someday when things clear up a little bit, I would invite you and any of your colleagues that would like to visit a, one of our Walgreens co-located clinics in Houston, soon to be in Phoenix, soon to be in other communities. We would love to entertain you and show you what that patient experience is like firsthand. Don't believe me. Talk to the physicians that work there. Talk to the patients that are served there.